Chapter 18 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Taking of Manila. On the way across the Pacific, the bloodless capture of Guam was effected by the first expeditionary force. Brigadier General Anderson, who was in command, had his troops quartered ashore soon after his arrival. On July 17th, a second contingent of 3,600 men came in under command of Brigadier General Francis V. Green. The next day they were landed at Paranaque, a position more than halfway between Cavite and Manila, which the insurgents had reached in their persistent advance. The captured vessels Rapido and Isabel and some cascos, lighters, which I had obtained for the purpose, were utilized in landing General Green's command, while the gunboat Callao covered the disembarkation, which was not in any way opposed, as the Spaniards kept to their agreement with me and made no demonstration during the operation. Within three days, the whole force, with their provisions, equipage, ammunition, and field guns, were all in camp on some good ground protected on one side by the beach and on the other by rice paddy fields and dense tropical undergrowth. Although within the range of the Spanish artillery, they were beyond that of the Spanish rifles, and without any interference by the Spaniards were able to settle down to the business of accustoming themselves to the heat, insect life, and torrential rains of their new surroundings. Manila at this time was garrisoned by some 13,000 troops, stationed either within the fortifications or in the lines of trenches and defensive works around the city. The insurgents had been at work only two months with an organization of the flimsiest character, yet by means of guerrilla warfare developed from years of experience in their resistance to Spanish domination, had not only advanced their lines along the beach almost to the fortifications, but had invested the city on the island side as well. Thanks to their advance, we were able to land our troops within easy striking distance of their objective. When Major General Merritt arrived on July 25th to take supreme command of the army, he agreed with me that it was not good policy to make any movement that would precipitate a conflict with the Spaniards or tend to bring on a general engagement before the chosen moment for a combined attack. My wishes were rather emphatic on this subject, and rightly so, I still think. I was already conducting negotiations with the Spanish captain-general, which I felt sure would result in a practically peaceful surrender of Manila, with a saving of life on both sides. However, with two armed forces facing each other in time of war, it is difficult to prevent a clash. And it was not long before the inevitable happened. General Merritt decided that the attack should be made along the shore and also that the insurgents, who were between our troops and the Spaniards, must be drawn to one side. His instructions, in common with mine, were to avoid all sign of alliance with the insurgents. Therefore, without holding any direct communication with Aguinaldo, he directed General Green to persuade the Filipinos to move out of the way. This Green tactfully accomplished, and our men soon occupied part of the trenches built by the insurgents. Had they remained in this position, there might have been no bloodshed. But on the plea that those trenches were not well located, they pushed ahead and began fortifying themselves in a new position nearer Fort San Antonio, garrisoned by the Spaniards, which was only a thousand yards distant. This work was continued for three days before the Spaniards made a move of any kind. 
then they appeared to realize that a new line of entrenchments three hundred yards in length much more formidable than the shallow rifle pits used by the insurgents was becoming a serious menace to the fort and on the night of july thirty first they suddenly opened fire on our troops to our naval officers thoroughly accustomed to such night alarms the firing as heard out on the bay seemed only a habitual proceeding between the spaniards and the insurgents but to our raw volunteers the sudden burst of bullets in the midst of intense darkness blinding rain and flooded trenches and generally exotic surroundings formed a real test of discipline and courage the spaniards made no advance their efforts were entirely confined to the rifle and artillery fire which continued for two hours our volunteers stood their ground during their baptism of fire with the nonchalance of veterans and suffered a loss of ten killed and thirty wounded meanwhile in anticipation of some such affair as a result of my observation of the course of events ashore i had directed the boston should anchor near our camp less than a mile from shore the captain was instructed to open fire if so requested by general green at the same time i strongly expressed my desire that this should be avoided unless considered absolutely necessary a less experienced officer than general green might have readily been misled into thinking the situation alarming but fortunately and much to my satisfaction he did not call upon the boston for assistance three more of these night attacks occurred during the ensuing week but in keeping with our mutual understanding general merritt had given positive orders that the spanish fire should not be returned unless the spaniards left their works to attack us this order was not implicitly obeyed as it was finally impossible to restrain our spirited infantry from returning some of the compliments which they were receiving from the enemy on july thirty first brigadier general arthur macarthur with four thousand additional troops arrived and after some delay owing to bad weather and to heavy surf they were added to the numbers under general green's command three days before this was effected however on august fourth the monterey steamed into the harbor and with her as a reinforcement my squadron was stronger than any squadron in the bay our troops were now chafing at restraint they could see no reason for further delay even general green earnestly requested that the attack should be delivered forthwith however i pointed out to him the risk and loss of prestige in a premature attack arguing that neither the army nor the navy was ready for an engagement the storm which had delayed the landing of MacArthur's brigade had also prevented the landing of ammunition of which there was a shortage on shore while the monterey after her long voyage needed a few days overhauling moreover i was sanguine of the successful issue to negotiations for a peaceful capitulation which i had initiated with the spanish captain-general through the medium of monsieur edouard andre the belgian consul in manila owing to the restriction of the blockade and to the investment of the city on the land side by the insurgents the people of manila were in a bad way for supplies soon after the victory of may first as i have already stated general don basilio augustin davila through the british consul mr rawson walker had intimated to me his willingness to surrender to our squadron but at that time i could not entertain the proposition because i had no force with which to occupy the city 
and I would not for a moment consider the possibility of turning it over to the undisciplined insurgents, who I feared might wreak their vengeance upon the Spaniards and indulge in a carnival of loot. During July the British consul was very ill. His death, in fact, occurred early in August. When the negotiations with the captain-general tending to a surrender were again broached, it was Monsieur André who acted as intermediary, transmitting all messages, always verbal ones, from the captain-general to me and from me to the captain-general. I was almost alone in believing in the sincerity of these negotiations. General Merritt was skeptical, but ready to defer to my judgment, and so were my chief of staff and my flag lieutenant. Nevertheless, I felt confident of the outcome, in which I consider that I was fully justified by later events. While Monsieur André's work had begun with Don Basilio on July 24th, a cable from Madrid had summarily dismissed Don Basilio from office, with orders to turn his authority to General Fermin Jardin. This cable presumably was sent to the Spanish consul in Hong Kong, whence it was transmitted through the mails, reaching Don Basilio about August 1st. It was in reply to a message from Don Basilio to the home government, in which he had pointed out the critical condition of affairs in Manila and to the hopelessness of its defense, the exhausted state of his troops, the shortness of provisions in the city, the rapid augmentation of the American forces, and the utter despair that existed on all sides since the receipt of the news of Camara's return to Spain. In view of these considerations, he declined the responsibility of the situation, and the government's answer was his relief from command. However, André continued with General Jourdain, the negotiations begun with Don Basilio. These progressed with varying success and numerous side issues, but always with the stipulation on the part of the Spaniards that if they surrendered, the insurgents should be kept out of the city. Finally, without making any definite promise, General Jourdain agreed that, although he would not surrender except in consequence of an, uh, an attack upon the city, yet unless the city were bombarded, the Manila batteries would not open on our ships. Moreover, once the attack was begun, he would, if willing to surrender, hoist a white flag over a certain point in the walled city from which it could be seen both from Malate and from the bay. In other words, his attitude differed from that of Don Basilio only in that he wished to show the form of resistance for the sake of Spanish honor, or, as the Chinese say, to save his face. It was also understood that before this white flag was shown, the Olympia should fly the international code signal DWHB, meaning surrender, and a sketch of the signal flags to be hoisted was given by Monsieur André to General Jourdain. Although there were some further negotiations concerning the terms of surrender, nothing was definitely agreed upon. While it was impressed on General Jourdain that the generosity of the terms granted would depend upon the brevity of his resistance. Indeed, those poor parleys continued until the day before the capture of the city. At first, General Merritt and myself decided upon August 10th as the date of the attack. On the 7th, we sent the usual 48 hours' notice preparatory to a bombardment to General Jourdain. 
He answered that, being surrounded by insurgent forces, he had no place of refuge for the wounded and sick and the women and children, except within the walls of the city. In reply, we pointed out how helpless was his position, and how clearly it was his duty to save the city from the horrors of bombardment. He demurred and begged time in which to consult his government, a request which was promptly refused. In keeping with our assurance on the 7th that the city would not be fired upon for at least 48 hours, the desultory firing between the infantry forces on either side ceased. On the 9th, the foreign men-of-war and the refugee steamers under their charge were notified to shift their anchorage so as to be out of the line of fire. It was noticeable that while the French and German vessels took up a position to the northward of the city, the English and Japanese came over to Cavite and anchored near our squadron. Later in the day, the Concord and Petrel were sent over in the vicinity of the German vessels. On the following morning, they closed in to within one mile of the breakwater at the mouth of the Pasig River. This position they maintained until the city surrendered. On the morning of the 10th, all preparations were complete for any emergency. Boats and extra gear had been sent on shore to the arsenal. The ships were cleared for action with steam up and waited only on the word to get under way. But the signal ran up to the Olympia's yard arm was, The attack is postponed. General Merritt had come on board the flagship to report that the army was not quite ready. However, on the 12th, it was announced that the attack would be delivered upon the following morning. The 13th dawned as a typical Manila day after intervals of rain during the night. The air was lifeless, the thermometer in the 80s, and everything was steaming with humid heat. But at 8 o'clock, the sky partially cleared and a light breeze sprang up. At 8.45, the ships got under way and moved into their stations, the Charleston, Boston, and Baltimore, off the Lunetta Battery, the Monterey, farther inshore and nearer the batteries of the city proper, the Concord, off the mouth of the Pasig, and the Olympia, Raleigh, and Petrel, with the Callao and McCullough, opposite the Malate Fort, where they could not only reduce the fort, but enfilade the Spanish lines. As we got under way, the officers and men of the British ship Immortalité crowded on the deck. Her guard was paraded and her band played under the double eagle, which was known to be my favorite march. Then, as we drew away from the anchorage, from which for over three months we had watched the city and bay, Captain Chichester got under way also, and with the Immortalité and the Iphigenia, steamed over toward the city and took up a position which placed his vessels between ours and those of the foreign fleet. We broke our battle flags from the mastheads with the conviction that we were to see the end of the story, which we had begun when they were broken out on the morning of May 1st. At 9.35, the Olympia, Raleigh, Petrel, and Callao opened fire on Fort San Antonio on the flank of the Spanish entrenchments, which was continued slowly for about an hour without any response from the fort. Meanwhile, we could see our troops on shore advancing through the fields and along the beach. As they came into view, sturdily breasting their way through the shallow water and meeting all obstacles with enthusiastic cheering, the flagship signaled to cease firing, and shortly afterward, followed by the Raleigh and Petrel, steamed to the northward to assume a position off the town. With the Callao under Lieutenant Tapan and the little Barcelo in charge of Naval Cadet White, keeping ahead of them and sweeping the beach and Spanish trenches with their machine guns, 
the troops gallantly rushed to the assault and soon were seen swarming over the parapets of fort san antonio at ten thirty five the spanish colors disappeared from the fort and our own were hoisted in the meantime the other vessels of the squadron had awaited developments in their position commanding the heavy batteries of the city itself few on board and indeed few of the junior officers of the army had any inkling of an agreement with the spaniards so that all were firmly convinced that they were going into action but my captains were directed not to fire unless fired upon and not one of the enemy's thirty-nine heavy guns having the range of our ships was discharged as the olympia and her consorts approached the other vessels the flagship was flying the international signal d w h b for surrender but although sharp eyes on the bridge of the flagship scrutinized the forts for a sign of the return signal the background was so indefinite that for a time being nothing was sighted finally however it was my fortune to be the first to make out a white flag flying on the appointed place on the southwest bastion of the city wall our own signal had been hoisted at eleven a m and it was not until eleven twenty that we distinguished the answer flag lieutenant bromby and colonel whittier of general merritt's staff with monsieur andre were now landed in the city and were met by general jourdain and admiral montojo and the preliminary articles of capitulation were promptly drawn up general jourdain had saved his honor by a formal show of resistance at two twenty brumby returned to the flagship with his report and i signaled the squadron the enemy has surrendered i directed the ships which had been kept under way in readiness for any failure of the compact with the spaniards to anchor off the waterfront of the city where they commanded it with their guns meanwhile the army had entered the city from the side of the luneta and with some difficulty had also prevented the insurgents from coming in probably the army officers were so completely absorbed in their work that they did not notice that the spanish flag was still flying over the citadel from the ships however it was strikingly apparent and i concluded that before the sun went down our colors must float over the city so i sent brumby on shore again with the largest american ensign we had on the flagship accompanied only by a couple of young signal boys he had to push his way through the crowded streets and enter a citadel filled with spanish soldiers not yet disarmed to accomplish his task at five forty three i saw the spanish flag come down and then our own float in its place the guns of all our ships thundered out a national salute while the band of one of our regiments which happily chanced to be passing the citadel played the star-spangled banner the troops saluted officers uncovered and the stars and stripes as it was raised for the first time over manila was greeted with all the honor so punctiliously given the flag on ceremonious occasions both by the army and the navy the next morning the foreign men of war were officially notified that the city had been occupied and the port was open of all the foreign commanders only captain chichester acknowledged the notification by firing the national salute of twenty-one guns with the american ensign at the main the details of the surrender were determined on the fourteenth by a joint commission on which my chief of staff captain lamberton was our naval representative the spanish troops surrendered the city and its defences with all the honors of war 
laying down their arms and referring the question of their future status and repatriation to the government at washington officers were allowed to retain their side-arms horses and private property all public property and public funds were turned over to united states authority and manila with its inhabitants churches educational institutions and private property was placed under the guard of the american army i paid my first visit to the city two days later and found conditions absolutely tranquil and orderly the people had already resumed their peaceful avocations and if it had not been for the colors over the citadel the american sentries posted here and there and the presence in the streets of the tall stalwart good-natured western volunteers who made the little filipinos seem diminutive in contrast one would never have imagined a state of war had lately existed or that the sovereignty of centuries had been changed news of the signing of the peace protocol with instructions to occupy the city pending the conclusion of a treaty of peace and to suspend hostilities and the blockade arrived in manila on the sixteenth and so did the monitor monadnock but now one was as useless as the other was unnecessary on the night of august fourteenth for the first time since april twenty fifth the ships were not shrouded in darkness that afternoon i had given the welcome signal all restrictions on lights revoked which meant an immense difference in the comfort of the officers and men of the squadron had not the cable been cut there would have been no attack on the thirteenth for while our ships counting the twelve hours difference in time between the two hemispheres were moving into position and our troops were holding themselves in readiness for a dash upon the spanish works the protocol was being signed at washington the absence of immediate cable connection had allowed no interruption to the fateful progress of events which was to establish our authority in the philippines on august twenty first the cable was raised and spliced and manila was no longer isolated from daily cable communication with the rest of the world End of chapter 18